Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us. Cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Molly Schatz is a senior fellow and director of the First Principles Program at Zephyr Institute, an educational nonprofit serving Stanford University in Silicon Valley. Molly received her PhD in intellectual history from UC Berkeley in 2007 and has served as an assistant professor at Florida State University and San Francisco State University. Her book, Slavery and Sin, The Fight Against Slavery and the Rise of Liberal Protestantism, was published by Oxford University in 2011. She has published articles in various journals, including First Things in Modern Intellectual History. Molly lives with her husband and four children in Mountain View, California, and is an active parishioner and catechist at St. William and St. Nicholas Church in Los Altos. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Molly Oshetz. So, um, First of all, I wanted to start off by talking about the title of the talk because I'm a little concerned it's insulting <laughs> um, because no one really likes to be told that they need therapy, right? Um, it's, it's, it's never um, something that, that is received well. So let me explain. I originally developed much of this material in a simpler form for high school students. Um, I work, as, as Andy said, for the Zephyr Institute, um, where one of my many roles there is to run a philosophy camp in the summer for high school students. This camp draws, as you might imagine, because they have many opportunities in the summer to do other things, extremely bright students who love to debate and discuss ideas. And it often feels like doing therapy when I teach this class. I also teach seminars for um, Stanford students, for grad students and undergrads, and those are really different. Um, for those seminars, the goal is just to get them to understand and grapple with and discuss complex ideas. But with the high school students, that's not enough for me. I'm not content with that. I need to get them somewhere. Um, I need to get them to solid ground, to, to, to get them to solid first principles that, that can be the basis of a solid life of pursuing truth and, and a support for faith. And most of them, and I hate to say this, but it's true, even the ones who come from very solid Catholic families, most of them start out when they enter the summer camp or the club that I run, they start out as sort of knee-jerk, unreflective moral relativists and materialists. It's just sort of what they assume smart people think about the world. So what we do, what I do, I kind of try to be a little bit like Socrates without getting killed, um, is to tease out those assumptions and investigate them until I hope, and this has happened more than a few times, I get that magic moment which looks like kind of like I imagine someone in therapy, this is, this is what it looks like in the movies, someone in therapy um, looks like when they have a breakthrough, when they sort of, they, they're talking a mile a minute and all of a sudden they stop and their mouth might drop a little bit, so their mouth is a little agape and they kind of inhale and look around and you can tell their gaze is turned inward and then there's kind of, they settle back and they smile and there's this moment of wonder and openness and realization that of intellectual humility, that there were actually many things they, they don't know and understand. And of course, that's what I'm looking for. <laughs> and like a therapist, I hope it sticks. Um, sometimes they show up the next summer and they're materialists and relativists again. So we have to start all over again. Um, there's one student I've been working on for three years. You are all, I imagine, mostly not high school students. And um, I'm not either. But I find that for all of us, and certainly for me, it takes active intellectual work and spiritual work to stop just to not adopt as just a baseline setting the sometimes hidden 
philosophical, metaphysical assumptions of our culture. They come in catchphrases, they come in ads, they come in just the conversations we end up having in the parking lots of schools and churches. Some of those assumptions are totally benign. Others are not, and they can make faith difficult, they can make growing in virtue difficult, and they can distance us ultimately from the truth. Um, and by truth, I don't mean little t truth, I mean big t truth, the truth that transcends all of us and is ultimately a person, the person of Jesus Christ. So by therapy, I mean interrogating those assumptions. So that's what we'll, we'll do here, basically, on a slightly higher level, um, asking basic questions and seeing where those lead us, following wisdom and common sense and some great thinkers that came before us in our tradition. So um, today, the very basic question of what is a human person? Who am I? What are we? And the next week, uh, we'll move on to what we can know, what reason can do, what human reason is capable of, and how it relates to faith. And finally, apply that in the final session to what that means about how we should live, what the purpose of human life and human society is. So, right to our question, what's a human person? To motivate your interest, I just want to mention, this is kind of obvious, but this is a really important question. Every day, we're called upon to deal with people, to love people, to help people, to lead people. And how we do that is going to depend, at least in part, on what we think people are, what a human person is. How we answer this question affects how we interact with people, the kind of relationships we form, and also our own relationships with our own bodies and the way we present ourselves in the world. So I'm gonna start by asking you all a question, just to get some ideas flowing out there of what you've heard. If you were to walk down the street in your neighborhood and ask the people around you that just happened you happen to bump into, what is a human person? What are some of the answers you think you'd get? Yeah, so, you know, I'm in the New York area, so I think the answer you'd always get is somebody who is, you know, awake to their innermost self, and they're expressing themselves, and they're trying to find their passion, and they're trying to live out that passion, and, uh, you know, it's always this act of constant discovery of opening doors, and that's what a human person is, at least in this Northeast area. Yeah, I haven't heard any of that in California. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Oshet, uh Kelly's writing and she's saying body and soul. Body and soul. Someone that's she lives in a pretty intelligent area. Okay. That's relatively good. Anyone anyone else? And then I'm gonna throw out some things that I tend to hear. I think we tend to hear one of two things. And what's interesting is they seem totally antithetical. Um, the first, and no one's mentioned this, but um, this one isn't as much something that draws on experience. And that's maybe why. The first is that obviously what we are are bodies, right? We're bodily creatures. We're animals. There's nothing that we really are that's not material because how could there be if you're a materialist, right? So everything is just a matter of atoms and molecules um, and neurons firing. And we're the product of evolution. We're the product of blind evolutionary forces that brought us from fish or whatever to our current form without any purpose, without any design. So we are what we are because of chance interactions between organisms, between matter and the environment. So we're evolved machines, basically. Nothing about us could be real that's not something scientifically observable. Now, of course, this isn't based on our experience because no one has an experience or feels like, yeah, I'm a machine but on the assumption that reality is material. So if reality is fundamentally material, if all that exists really is stuff moving about in space and time, then that's all we could be. So everything else, feelings, thoughts, love, has to be um, epiphenomenal. In other words, it's an effect that's produced by something more fundamental that's the actual real thing, in this case, material stuff. So all that other stuff isn't really real, it's just apparent. It's, the way our, it's a product of the way our, our neurons relate to reality. So that's one. We're just, we're bodies. And then there's the other one, which was mentioned, that idea that we are our innermost precious selves. What's essential to us is this ineffable inner reality that's always developing, that contains our individual desires and dreams and memories and hopes. And what is most human, you often hear with this, way of thinking, what's most human about us is our ability to express that, to get our reality to um, mirror that self and be an expression of that self and an, and an affirmation of that self. So in this scenario, what's merely stuff, what's merely material, like our bodies, 
are just our tools. They're our possessions because they're not part of that ineffable reality. They're things. And so we can do with them as we please, as long as what we do with them expresses what's really real about us. So the body then exists to express the real us. Now, my point obviously is this is weird. It's weird to live in a culture that assumes materialism is a baseline metaphysical reality and yet speaks of the self as something ineffable and immaterial. So the line here, if you put it together is, we are bodies, but our bodies aren't us. So what's going on there? Obviously these two perspectives are in a way a world apart. Um, one seems the most real, the only real thing as quantifiable, measurable material. And the other sees the most real thing as something ineffable, immeasurable, and entirely individual. Maybe not even something that can be communicated fully intersubjectively. And yet, these two perspectives, which you could kind of short note as materialism and the kind of modern form of Gnosticism, they have one really important thing in common. Both see the material world or nature as essentially meaningless and lacking in purpose. So our bodies can't be us on the one hand, because nature, stuff, material reality is utterly meaningless and we're not meaningless. So we must be something immaterial then, something that animates otherwise meaningless stuff that has no innate purpose. So the materialism view, the bodies are all we could be view and that we are in a most ineffable selves view are actually mutually dependent. Uh, materialism requires us to find something non-bodily and non-physical to be the bearer of meaning. You gotta sweep the meaning under that rug. And yet at the same time, it denies that that meaning can be really real. It can't ever get past the ineffable and you wouldn't know because you're not me and the purely personal. So both agree in denying that there's meaning in nature, that there could be something called human nature. In other words, they deny that there's anything essential and not purely accidental about being human, anything real and objective about being human. And therefore, neither provides adequate support for human dignity. So I'm gonna start, and this is the structure of the talk, you'll see if you have the hand on. I'm gonna start with four examples of how this plays out, and then we're gonna do some metaphysics, and then we're gonna go back to those four examples and see if we've gotten clarity on how we can rescue human dignity through metaphysics. So here are the four examples in, in the beginning. One, Neither of these views can tell us why humans are special, why we have any special significance compared to, say, animal life, or even, I'm in Silicon Valley, really artificial AI, really advanced artificial AI, not really artificial AI. And this is kind of obvious why, right? According to the first, we're just a state of evolution, right? So we've all evolved, and right now we might be at the apex of evolution, but evolution's ongoing. So there's really nothing essential or lasting about what is human now. Um, we change, we shift, we might be supplanted by a new, more evolved form of life, perhaps a transhumanistic or artificial form of life. Um, and so we might want to grasp hold and think ourselves are special, think we're special, but that's just because we're familiar to ourselves and we are kind of our own. So we can't have any deep reason for prioritizing human life because we're just an arbitrary biological product, product in the midst of an arbitrary biological process. And then according to the other view, the modern Gnostic view, what matters is inner life, which is shared perhaps by animals, especially one notices the really cute ones, right? I mean, the dolphins and the puppies of the world. So it, bodies don't matter really, if they don't have any um, essential meaning, and all that matters are the best of our innermost fuzzies. I don't mean to downplay all that entirely. I do like dolphins, but all that matters are you know, empathy and kindness and a desire to connect. Then what reason could there be other than speciesism to think ourselves are more um, deserving of love and power than other forms of life? I'll talk more about this in other talks, but this worldview also um, assumes that we're just driven by desire fundamentally. Because if there's nothing, there's no such thing as human nature, then what else could we be driven by? There's, there's no way for us to reason about um, what is best for us as humans um, because there's no reality apart from individual choice about what that might be. So like animals, we're driven by desire. So again, it's, it's hard to see why we have a unique role or unique dignity. So that's human, the, the uniqueness of the human species. Two, the human life issues. 
Neither can tell us why we should protect human life when it is inconvenient or unproductive or inefficient or painful to do so. The machine one, the materialism, of course, this is pretty obvious, right? If we're basically machines, machines don't possess inherent dignity. Um, so we should just serve ourselves by making life as efficient as possible. What meaning could there be to sacrifice or to suffering if it doesn't produce material gain, something that's quantifiable? So I don't know if you've noticed, you probably have. Our discussion of the common good has become very anemic um, in, a, in a public space, um, especially say in a national level as opposed to a very local level. It tends to reduce to a very thin and entirely measurable goods like um, GDP, human lifespan, and so forth. But those, those are kind of all you can justify from a materialist standpoint because they're measurable. On the other hand, if we are innermost ineffable precious selves and not our bodies, there's a problem there too. I think you might all be able to think of some time in what you think of as your life when you didn't have that ineffable, precious, self-conscious sense of self, say in the womb, or perhaps in the future in your life when you say lose intellectual or emotional powers, say if you develop dementia or you um, have a traumatic accident that causes brain injury. So there could be you without that ineffable, precious sense of desire and self and will and desire to manifest your, your own reality. So it, did you not have rights or dignity then? How could you, according to this way of life? Your sense of self was not really formed in the womb or even in babyhood. Um, it emerged later when you were capable of speech and forming memories and dwelling upon your own life. And in advanced age or due to disease, you'll lose a lot of that. So what are you then? If your inwardness and your conscious will and, and your ability to actualize yourself is what makes you human, then you weren't human. So there's no need to accord you what is due to a human person, whether you're an unborn child or a newborn baby or a one-year-old, really, or a person suffering from brain trauma or someone with dementia. Three, this is very brief, human sexuality. Neither also can tell us why sexuality should possess any inherent meaning or moral significance. Because if we're machines, if we're just stuff, we're parts. And parts are parts are parts. Parts can't give rise to meaning and purpose. And if we are our desires of our ineffable self, then whatever we desire, as long as it doesn't impair the ability of others to actualize their desires, is an expression of what it is to be human. Because that's what we reduce what is being, what is humanity to. And actually, because it's so intimate to the self, sexuality is, is particularly expressive of that ineffable self. And so according to that, that bare bones logic, it should anything that doesn't harm another or constrict another should be illicit. And finally, this one's a little more complicated, so I'm gonna need your help with this one. The, the last one is personal identity. Um, I mean, there are many others, but these are the four I picked. Personal identity is a topic in philosophy. Uh, it doesn't relate to like, I identify as, that's not what I'm talking about. This isn't the transgender can of worms here. Personal identity is the problem of explaining what accounts for the fact that a person remains the same person over time, despite really dramatic changes in their body and in their psychological characteristics. So this is me. Okay, right? So I'm this cute little girl here. But I have no memory of this. And here I am with a Christmas stocking, and I got the rockin' 70s chair behind me and the piano. So how is it that I look at this photo and say, oh, that's me? What is it that makes me the same person as that little girl? Um, it, I didn't, they didn't have ultrasound photos when I was in utero, or I would have showed you one of those. So my body's changed, obviously, a lot. <laughs> my mental life is really different. I have no memory of this. And yet I'm the same person throughout. What makes that the case? Um, so I'm going to open this up for a second. Think of something like that from a memory of your childhood. Put it, an image in your head or a picture you've seen of yourself as a very young child. What is it? that makes you the same person as you were then. Does anyone have any thoughts? Sue's raising her hand. I have a body and I have a soul. Okay, Yanta is saying there is uh, time and physical continuity between the child you were and the woman you are. Uh, Karen is saying love. Laura is saying we are self-possession and have distinct personal ends. Robin is saying, you are the same instantiation of a rational nature. 
Diana, proclivity to uh, respond to circumstances more or less similar. Etta, same personality, like in Myers-Briggs test. Uh, genetically the same is what Mary's writing. Uh, the, the, Robert saying potentiality. I think that's enough. That covers it. Yeah, those are, those are all really helpful. So I'm not going to address those one by one, but I think we'll kind of bring it all together. I'm just going to talk about this from the two perspectives of materialism and ineffable reality and ineffable selfhood, um, Gnosticism and materialism, and then I'll get back to the, to the others um, later in the talk. First of all, body alone isn't going to do it, obviously, and I'll explain a little bit more why. For one thing, every cell in my body has been replaced many times over since that photo was taken. I'm like the ship of Theseus. Um, that's the ship that has been entirely replaced by new boards, one board at a time. So none of the original boards remain. So is it still the same ship? Um, what could make it the same um, if it's essentially nothing more than a collection of interworking parts? If I'm just parts, um, then no matter how well integrated those are, there's nothing really to being me. Also, you can lose a lot of your body and still be you, right? So um, you know, someone that, say, is, is injured in an explosion and loses their legs, uh, they've lost like a third of their body, but they would never say they've lost a third of them. You know, it's traumatic. They might have a different sense of self, but it wouldn't be, a, you know, an equation like that. On the other hand, I also can't say that I'm my desires and characteristics and beliefs and memories and this sort of grab bag of subjective things. Because for one thing, I was myself before I had memories, of course, or the ability or the language to express or form thoughts about my desires or to even enact psychological characteristics. And I also have existed in many hours in my life um, in which I had no consciousness at all. I did that last night when I was asleep. Um, I'm hoping to do it again tonight. And yet I existed as an embryo, I existed as a baby, and I exist when I'm asleep. Furthermore, and this is more sort of misty and metaphysical, but I don't know that I'm the same person because of continuity of things like psychological traits or memory or desires or belief. It's actually the other way around if you think about it. Um, you never identify a past event. You never say, oh, well, that's, um, uh, that's, that's a memory. Oh, so I, I have that memory, that must be me. You actually do the opposite. Um, you identify past events as memories if they happen to you. Um, and if you're wrong about that, you instantly correct yourself, right? Um, you identify desires as your own if there are desires you have or have had in the same with beliefs. So I somehow your identity, your sense of that's mine is more fundamental, I think, if you reflect upon it, than any bundle of beliefs or memories or tendencies or characteristics or desires than you can have. Somehow we have a sense of self with real permanency and integrity that can't be assembled from just fleeting, maybe less fleeting, who knows, properties of mine that could be taken from me without ending my life, right? I am not just a body, but I am somehow a single real being, a robust subject of consciousness and intentionality. I'm not just a collection of subjective bits. So on, on either the materialist perspective or the ineffable self perspective, we're somehow losing what it means to be a human person in a real tangible sense. Because for one thing, we don't have soul. That's a pretty obvious one, but I'm going to get into more detail about that. Um, so in conclusion, before I move on, whether we take either of those perspectives, we lose all that really matters. <laughs> so we lose human uniqueness. We lose human dignity. We lose the meaning of sexuality and the family. But even more so, we, we lose people. We lose the, the conception of the human person as such. So we have a problem. And what we need here to, to kind of address the culture and these issues and to firm up our own understanding is a clear understanding of the human person that makes sense of our lives as bodily and spiritual creatures and of our special standing in the natural world and our inherent dignity and worth as human beings. So what are we if we are not just bodies and we're not just souls, but we are one thing? What are we? We can start, I think, by contemplating our own experience of personhood. And there are many clues I think, in our ordinary experiences. So I think people have kind of spoken to that a little bit already, so I'm not, I was going to open that up, but I think I'll move on and, and ask a more specific question later. The existence of that ineffable self, I think, is actually helpful here. We all have that experience of, no, there's a me, there's this precious me, right, that's not reducible 
to the purely um, what you can know about me from a third person perspective, that there's this real us inside. That's evidence that the, there's something wrong with the, the purely materialist angle on who we are as people. We have an insider's view. I mean, this is how I can ask this question. Suppose that there's a scientist of the future and they have the ability to use all kinds of fancy diagnostic tools and to observe you over time. So they know everything that's potentially observable about you from a third person perspective, right? They can measure your brain waves. They know what you eat. They watch your tendencies over time. They kind of feel like they know how they're going to react to different situations. They know your genome. They know all of these things about you that, that can be observable and measured from a third person perspective. Are they missing anything? Well, they're just going to, as you said before, they're going to miss the whole expression of you, right? We all have the same biochemistry. We all have essentially the same genetic material, but, you know, you have beautiful long brown hair and I have, you know, this crazy mop on my head. You know, even though we're all very much carbon copies of each other, we're not even remotely similar to one another. You know, I play baseball well, but, you know, my brothers don't. I play guitar well, but no one else does. So it's like the epigenome, right? There's this extra thing that somehow or another expresses itself beyond just carbon dioxide and water and all the other stuff that goes into us. Presumably, I mean, there's, there's an interesting thing there. So if they could figure out the epigenome, they could figure out like, well, you have this genetic information, but if these experiences will, will, will make it do certain things. This is, um, that almost gets out of it, but there's still a third person perspective that, like I can observe that you play this instrument and your brother doesn't, or that you play this game and your brother doesn't, but it's getting at the problem. Like what is missing under that? Why can't? Well, because all these things are potentialities. Like I could be good at guitar, but if I never pick up one, you would never okay. know that. But one thing is it's you know, I could be good. Well, yeah, it's part of our experiences. Like you were saying, what's observable? You know, yeah. if Derek Jeter never picked up a baseball, would we know that he could be the greatest shortstop the Yankees ever had? You know, we wouldn't know that. You know, there's potentialities, but then that's different than reality. It strikes me as being like statistics or a, a clinical drug study. You know, we're trying to find the real value underneath all this other right. noise and all these other things that are happening. Two, two other kind of interesting comments that are coming in here. Richard is saying, uh, could it be the will, uh, which doesn't seem to be measurable, yet it exists. And then Mary is also suggesting maybe uh, one's thoughts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, well, there's, one, there's a philosopher who talks about this, and what he, he uses very common sense sort of ordinary language to say it, but it, what's missing essentially is what it's like to be you. So yeah, also missing the future, missing, you know, you can't predict because we have free will, right? So that's, just, I'm going to table free will, though. I don't want to talk about free will. But it's missing what it's like to be you, that there is this, um, and, and the important point here is this is not a failure of science that might be remedied someday. It's an impossibility. We have a, a unique, solitary, unitary consciousness that is an inward and immeasurable reality um, that's not something we can find out there. And yet it's the most fundamental part of reality, if you think about it, because we know everything else through it. And we can only know the natural world through that consciousness, through this power of our unitary, focused, individual consciousness. If you think about it, this is something David Bentley Hart says, what we call nature or the material world is actually more of an abstract concept than our own consciousness is. We never actually see autonomous nature. We have no immediate experience of pure nature. We can't encounter the world without doing so through the medium of our own consciousness, which is not reducible to material reality because it's, it's not out there to be observed. But on the other hand, that doesn't mean that we are, going back to our experiential level, that doesn't mean that we are that mind and not our bodies. Um, for instance, if someone were to pinch you really hard on the arm right now randomly, you wouldn't say like, oh, that hurt my arm part, right? You'd say, why are you hurting me? So we have this experience also of our bodies being ourselves. And that's certainly how we know other people. We know each other as bodily realities. Um, if we were just souls inhabiting body suits, I wouldn't even know that we're not in Freaky Friday. You know that movie where the mother and the daughter switch lives? I wouldn't know that you, your, your soul could somehow hop to another body if those are, if those are really separable realities. So our own experience as human persons, I think, tells us that we are both body and mind, body and soul. But we aren't two things. 
there aren't two me's like the bodily me and the spiritual me. I'm one. My consciousness is consciousness is unitary and simple. It's not something made from parts. So how's that possible? And here, and I'm realizing we're running low on time. I'm going to um, turn to Aristotle. I'm going to, I'm going to skip my brief introduction to Aristotle. I'm just going to assume people vaguely know who Aristotle is. At least he was the philosopher for a thousand years. He's kind of a big deal and he's still a big deal in metaphysics and ethics. Aristotle had this idea, which some of you might have heard of, called hylomorphism. Hyla for body and morphe for form. Um, and to introduce this idea, which I want to throw around about what it means to be a human person, because I think we, a lot of us have a table in front of us. We're not going to start right at humans. We're going to start at just the most basic thing, a table. A table is neither just what it's made of, that being wood here, or its form, or its shape but it's a union of both. So if it were just wood without the shape of a table, it wouldn't be a table. And if it were just um, a thought of a shape without the material, it, it also wouldn't be a table. It's one thing, but it's a composite of shape or form and matter. If you were, for instance, to take that wood and make it into something different, um, it, that new object would keep the same matter but have a new form, and therefore it would be a new single thing. Here's Aristotle's idea about the human person, and I want to see what you think of this. Aristotle's idea was that our soul is the form of our body. Now, I want to clarify, because when we think soul, we tend to think something else than he really meant. By soul, he didn't mean the spiritual part of us or the innermost ineffable us, and he also didn't mean our mind. For Aristotle, the soul is not like an immaterial substance, like a ghost that comes in and makes a thing alive, like a ghost, you know, possessing matter. He's not putting the soul out there. He's not postulating the soul as a way of explaining how matter can have the form of a living thing, how matter can be alive. Rather, it's just that the soul is, it just is the form of a living thing. It's one kind of form among others. Tables have a form and so do human beings. So its existence in that way is odd to the modern mind, but it's not really controversial or mysterious in and of itself. The soul here is just what gives us shape. It's what organizes our being. It's what makes us distinct from everything else around us. Makes us, in the case of the table, if the table is something because it has a form, we are someone. We're differentiated as an individual because we have that form. And for Aristotle, all living things have souls in this way, although very different sorts of souls. I'll, get, I'll say more about that in a second. So our soul is the form of the body. Now, this implies, as with the table, we can't be just our soul or our form, nor can we just be the material of the body. So when we die, for instance, we'll still have the material that was once our body, but we'll no longer be a human person because we will have lost what? Our form. And I'll get to death and immortality also. And yet we're not exactly like a table, of course. Before we can talk about humans or how humans are different from tables, though, I need to talk about how, what makes living things different. What makes living things different from inanimate objects? And this is a funny question when I pose it to people sometimes. Like, you think you'd know, like, off the top of your head. Define alive. And just like some of the other questions I've asked, people end up throwing a lot of things out there. And it ends up being kind of a grab bag. Um, it turns out if you open your child's biology textbook, you will also find a grab bag. There's no simple scientific definition of what constitutes life. It's a list of features that one could add to perhaps in the future. So it's things, you know, like you might, you might imagine these things like metabolism, the ability to reproduce, the ability to learn, the ability to pass information on to a new generation. Notice some of these things could be true of machines. Some of them could not like metabolism. Um, but there's no cut dry, like one sentence definition of life. And there's a reason for that. It's ultimately a question for metaphysics. Here's the Aristotelian answer. A living thing is able to undertake activity that furthers its own good. So a living thing can undertake activity that furthers its own good. It can do what is perfective of it, what fulfills it. It's inherently directed towards its own good. A living thing has inherent tendencies, it has inherent purposes, even if they're not conscious. So, you know, worms have inherent tendencies and purpose. You don't have to be conscious of them for them to exist. Another way of thinking about this is to contrast machines and living substances. Machines are composites. 
They're made up of several or many substances. And they have, those things have to be arranged to make the machine. Their parts don't have the innate tendency to come together. If they do have innate tendencies, those parts, it's because of what they were um, innately, um, a result of the natural things they weren't once a part of. Aristotle has this fun, quirky example of a wooden bed. And this is a really weird bed because it is so fresh. Like someone didn't really process the wood, kind of at all. And it's still green. It's just so it's minimally processed and super, super new. So say you have this bed and someone plants it. What's going to grow from that? Obviously, right? A, not a bed. Right? A tree is going to grow from that, not a bed. And that encapsulates a difference between something that's alive and something that's a composite or, or a, a, an artifact. So everything grows from it. It's a tree because its arrangement as a bed is accidental in, in Aristotelian terms. It's not substantial. It's not essential. It's an accident. It had to be brought together artificially to make it into a bed, whereas it's a tree essentially. Substantial form is what this kind of form is. So the table doesn't have a substantial form. I get to decide what a table is. I could drag a board over here, put it on some concrete blocks, and I got a table. But living things have substantial forms. That's what gives them that inherent purpose and that ability to undertake activity that furthers their own good. They exist substantially like a tree and not accidentally like a bed. Um, so they have parts. I have parts, you have parts, but those parts have a natural tendency to come together because they have this organizing and substantial form. So that's the thing. The substantial form is what organizes those parts to an intrinsic eternal, internal purpose. So non-living things can't do this. Another term I put on, the, on the, the sheet is imminent teleology, which means living things carry their purpose, their telos, within their being. So Again, I can decide what counts as a table, right? But I can't decide, for, for instance, what counts as a rabbit. <laughs> a rabbit has an intrinsic nature. It isn't dependent on intention or on, on my mind or anyone else's mind. What makes us living creatures is that we have a substantial form that orders us to the fulfillment and perfection of our nature. So that's what makes us a living creature. But back to the point, what makes us human and, and not a rabbit? I mentioned that for Aristotle, plants and animals also have souls, like everything alive has a soul. And these souls have powers that are also possessed by human souls, like growth, metabolism, in the case of reproduction, in the case of plants, or sense and mobility, in the case of animals. Humans possess another set of powers. I think someone mentioned this already, the powers of intellect and a will informed by the intellect. So they, we are rational souls. So alone among bodily creatures, we have this intellect that can grasp concepts and reason on the basis of them to attain truth. And we have a will that can choose a course of action that best accords with that truth, in particular the truth about human nature. So just like any form has, imparts an imminent teleology, ours does too. A rational soul imparts um, a teleology to us. It means we're pointed to something, namely truth. And not lots of little truths, but big T truth. And our will is pointed toward the good. And not just lots of little goods, but goodness. So our very form points us, to, in Aristotle, points us toward the transcendent. We're inherently, by our very nature, connected to what is beyond us. Um, we find our fulfillment in God. Which brings us and I'm just going to say this briefly, if people have questions later, I can go back to it. It brings us to another thing that people see this in Aristotle and think, wait, I have a question. How are we immortal then if we're this composite? There's another aspect of our souls that Aristotle kind of gets at and Aquinas further develops, which is that we are naturally, there's something about our form, our substantial form that's naturally immortal. Because there's, in Aristotle, very briefly, there's this asymmetry between form and matter. You can't have matter without form. You can't, I mean, you can kind of conceive of formless matter, but it can't actually exist. It's just bleh, right? Anything you can imagine has a form already. But it is possible to have form without matter. In fact, God himself, and the way Aristotle conceives of God, is pure form. So Aquinas expands on this and says human souls have a natural immortality because our intellect is independent from matter. We grasp forms in a way that he argues a purely material substance cannot. 
And I could say more about that if you're interested. That gets very technical and it's controversial. It's something that you know certainly could be open for disagreement. But I just want to point out here that there are very sophisticated arguments why the human substantial form and the rational will can be something that is immortal. On the other hand, though, we cannot be fully ourselves, according to Aquinas. We cannot be a complete substance without the unity of body and soul, because we simply are that union. So from a Christian perspective, hence the need for a resurrection. We are still fundamentally bodily creatures. That being said, there is something about our forms that is connected to the universal and not reliant upon the material. So I've been sticking with purely philosophical grounds, but at this point, I think we need to bring in the Bible and the, the catechism. The relevant Bible verse is probably pretty obvious. Um, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, God created mankind in his own image. We need to bring this in. It's an essential part of knowing what we are as human people that we can't discover purely through reason, actually. Um, I'm going to get out my catechism and turn to paragraph 357. Um, this is 356 and 357, which reads, Of all visible creatures, only man is able to know and love his creator. He is the only creature on earth that God has willed for its own sake, and he alone is called to share by knowledge and love in God's own life. It was for this end that he was created, and this is the fundamental reason for his dignity. Being in the image of God, the human individual possesses the dignity of a person who is not just something, but some one. So that accords with what I've been saying about holomorphism, but it adds another crucial layer to it. According to scripture and our tradition, we have inherent dignity, not just because we have a rational substantial form or an intellect and will ordered to the true and the good and the beautiful, but because we're made in the image and likeness of God. We're a someone, not a something. So there we have it. We're a union of body and soul. We're not just bodily, and we're not just a soul wearing a bodysuit. Um, and our soul is of a particular sort. It's a rational soul that orders us inherently to the true and the good as the basis for our fulfillment. So I want to circle back before opening up for questions to those four issues and see if we've made any progress on them. I think the first one's pretty obvious, how we're different from animal life or artificial life. We have substantial forms and not just um, the substantial forms that, that all living things possess, but we have rational souls ordered to the transcendent. Two, why human life is worthy of protection, even when it is a real pain to do so. This too, I hope, is clear. We're made in the image and likeness of God. Boom. Also, because we're a union of body and soul, there is no moment of human life or condition of human life, as long as we're alive, that can make us not really human. If we didn't have a human form, we simply wouldn't be human. We are never bodies lacking the rationality that makes us human, because as long as we have the form of a human, which means we're a human being that is alive, we have a human essence and a human nature. And we have that essence even if something, say our developmental stage or disability or advanced age or disease keeps it from being realized, which means there's no difference at all between being a human being and being a human person. No space there, same thing. So there are no human beings who don't get to count as human persons. Three, human sexuality. I haven't talked about this since I mentioned the four things in the beginning, but I have talked about our bodies. Um, if we're a unity of body and soul, rather than souls that occupy and use bodies, then sex is inherently meaningful. It's a gift of self, not just a temporary gift that, can that we can separate from the real us. So it's clear then that it has to be ordered, as we are as human persons, to the good, which isn't something we're free to invent, like a table but something that is given to us and depends on our inherent nature. A word about gender and sexuality. Our culture is often really confused understanding of the human person sometimes leads us to think of men and women as if what's really us is the same. And what makes us different is not really what's us, but just bodily stuff that has no inherent meaning that's arbitrary. It's different plumbing, it's different hormones. They're powerful but they're just stuff and we can manipulate them. That implies there really is actually no such thing, essentially speaking, as a man or a woman. Those categories are like table, as opposed to say like rabbit. There's something we can engineer, we can redefine with no inherent nature that gives us access to reasoning about the good and the true. So if we're just our souls or just our bodies, we actually don't exist as men or women, um, and we can't encounter, 
account, therefore, for our embodied human experience. But if we are this union of body and soul, then sex has an inherent meaning and purpose that we can work through um, reason to discover and faith. Finally, personal identity. I think we kind of wrapped that one pretty clearly, um, right? Um, how it is that we can account for being the same person over time. We can't just be materials, material because our bodies can't even exist as pure matter, right? Um, that's why we talk about corpses, by the way, as human remains, because they're technically not human because they've lost form. Nor are we this grab bag of subjective traits as human persons, there's some other thing about us. There's something that transcends, organizes, and gives inherent purpose to those things, and that is our substantial form, our rational soul. So there we have it. We're not a blank slate. We are not beings to be engineered to meet whatever desires we happen to have. We are made for something. We have a nature and a purpose and a glorious one. And next week, I'll talk about how we can use reason to know that purpose and reclaim the use of reason for knowing that purpose. Um, and now I welcome your questions. Excellent, thank you, Dr. Oshatz, we appreciate it. Uh, we'll start with Vincent's question. Dr. Oshatz, could you repeat that definition of the soul from Aristotle? I don't know exactly which definition, but there's this the basic soul, that the, the basic understanding of soul, that's a kind of soul that, that is plants and animals and humans, anything that's alive has which uh, something is their form. So it's the organizing principle that makes them a something or someone um, and differentiates them. That's their form. That, that's how their soul is their form. And then living things in particular have a substantial form. So it's a form that makes them have an inherent purpose, inherent meaning, and inherent essence that is objective. Um, and it doesn't matter whether or not they're conscious of it. Obviously, plants aren't conscious of having a substantial form. And that gives them, as living entities, the ability to undertake activity that furthers their own good. So tables have forms. Everything around you that is an individuated thing or living entity has a form. Otherwise, you wouldn't recognize it or be able to grasp it as something apart from everything else. It's kind of the principle of individuation. It's how things have an organizing principle that makes them something. It's how our brains also form. It's how our brains grasp the world in Aristotelian metaphysics, which I'll talk about um, next week. And then the, the human soul is a, is, a, is a substantial form, but particularly a form that possesses rationality. Okay. So, he, so basically, uh, Vincent was saying that he thought the definition that he's always kind of worked with from Aristotle was, quote, the principle of life in that which in, that in which it is. I guess essentially the principle of life. He's wondering, is that essentially the same thing that you're saying? Or is it different? I think so. Aristotle uses examples of like if, if the eye had if the eye were to have a soul, it would be sight. So I think he is getting at the idea that that, that the uh, form of something is it's the organizing principle. It's it's the essence of what it is. It's it's how it has a nature. It's how we can grasp it. So that sounds like yes, principle of life to me, what it is of something. But you need matter also, of course, to determine what something is. Like, um, you know, we grasp things through form, but in this life, in this world, uh, you have to have a composite form of matter to be something that, yeah, is visible. Okay, Sister Jabbar is writing in. She's asking, have you heard of the terms true self versus false self? Mm. Uh, if you have, what is meant by that? I've heard about that in a lot of different contexts, so I don't know exactly what she's referring to. I mean, I've certainly heard about the kind of a new agey context. I assume she means in a Christian context, which I've heard about that in terms of making sense of, say, the distinction Paul makes between um, the, the flesh and the soul, or the, the, the part of us that we're to deny, the part of us that we're to die to, um, versus the part of us that God loves and adores and, and died to save. I, I don't know exactly. I mean, I also assume the question is how to bring that into this discussion. Sure. That's a world from Aristotle because now we're talking about revelation as opposed to just a tradition of, you know, classical philosophy and reason. But I would say that uh, the false self is something that is fully um, dependent on the material because it's appetite, right? It's something that's very time bound and is not immortal. So I think it fits in, 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 that, in with Aquinas and that the parts of us, that point to the true and the good that are made to, to transcend, that's the true self. In the sense that that is the immortal self, that is 
the self of us that endures and fulfills our nature and perfects our nature. There's this weirdness in, in Aristotle and in, in all classical thinking, really, that there's an oddity about human nature. What is most natural to us in terms of what is our purpose and our ultimate, uh, ultimately our telos, doesn't come naturally. So, you know, just doing what feels right, doing what comes naturally to you will not allow you to fulfill your nature. So we use nature in two different senses there. Whereas, you know, a, a, an animal or a plant doing what comes naturally to it will, for the most part, allow it to fulfill its nature. But humans are different that way. And our revelation, revelation would teach us that's because we're fallen. Todd's writing in here. I'm going to synthesize what you wrote in there, Todd. This makes more sense when we're in a context like this. And we kind of have the space and time to explore metaphysics. He's wondering, there's a lot of people out there that just kind of like write off metaphysics. Right. How, how do we engage them or persuade them that it's something worth studying or it's not just kind of like this dry thing that uh, is too abstract to understand? I think uh, Socrates is a really good guide here. I mean, if, if we like to think we know what we're about. Like everyone out there likes to think that we've figured stuff out enough to kind of be able to answer big questions. But as a society, we don't ask big questions very often, and we don't tend to engage in conversations that involve big questions. But we're made to do that. So I think there's a drive within all of us to do that and a desire to have those answers. So what's, what we need to do is just ask those questions. So less talking, um, which I haven't modeled here, of course, and more asking of questions. So more like I kind of tried to model a little bit in this talk, asking people about their, when, you know, the, if people start mouthing the catchphrases of, you know, transgender ideology or whatever it is, um, which I run into a lot. So just be, not be anxious, like right, watch your anxiety level. God does not need a lawyer. You do not have to step into that role, but just be curious, ask questions. And what's wonderful about this <laughs> is that all these worldviews crumble, you know, really quickly if you're like, once you're like five questions in. So know your tradition well, and then just have a spiritual openness to, to trust that God is working with these people too. Like you don't have to be a lawyer. You don't have to get them to God through your own relationship to God and through your own tradition. Just keep asking questions, keep engaging human reason and demanding more of it than we tend to demand of it in this culture. I'll talk more about that next week too. Okay, awesome. I think that's a good place for us to stop today. Uh, thank you, Dr. Schatz. We really appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.